Good morning. It is such a joy uh, to be with you today. Uh, it's so good to see some old faces, uh, some old timers here. Um, I love this church in a special way because this church will always be home church to me. Uh, this is the church where I got my start in pastoral ministry. I preached my first sermon here uh, about 25 years ago, not in this location, uh, but to this church. I served as a pastoral intern here in the youth and college ministries. I got ordained here. I served as the EM pastor, and then this church commissioned me to plant a new life church in Burbank. So this church has a very special place in my heart, and I will always love and appreciate this church as my home church. And it makes me so glad to see how God has grown and developed and matured this beautiful church over the years. And I'm so thankful for the ways that this church under Pastor Will's leadership is advancing the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God. And I want you to know, New Life, that I'm a big fan of Pastor Will because he's amazing. He's gifted and godly. And I want you to know that your senior pastor is respected by so many other pastors and admire him and follow his example. And I'm so grateful that uh, you uh, gave him, uh, granted him this sabbatical to rest and to be refreshed. Uh, you have always taken such good care of your pastors, and it makes me glad to see that you're continuing uh, to do so. Again, it's just a tremendous joy and pleasure for me to be with you today. Uh, the title of today's sermon is The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and we're going to read from verse 9 to 14. Now, for those of you who grew up in this church, this may be a familiar parable. But I urge you today to pay attention because, because it's familiar, you may find it boring. But more than that, you might be tempted to dismiss this parable as irrelevant to you because parables like this are always for someone else and not for you, right? But today I hope to show you that maybe, just maybe, that this parable applies to all of us, to all of us in the room. So people of God, uh, this is the word of God. Would you please give it your careful attention? He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's what we do at our church. I'm sorry. Um, here's the outline for my sermon today. First, the audience of the parable. Second, the contrast in the parable. And third, the lesson of the parable. So let's start with the audience. Of the parable. In verse 9, Jesus told us who this parable is for, who the audience is that he's speaking to. In verse 9, Jesus says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. According to Jesus, this parable is for people who are proud and self-righteous and who look down on other people. This parable is for people who trust in their religious and pious activities and who believe that that made them more righteous than others and then who can now look down on others who are less righteous than them. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Pastor Owen, this parable doesn't apply to me. I know I'm not very righteous. I know I'm not very pious. I don't even like going to church. I try not to be religious. And so I don't look down on other people who aren't churchy and and religious at all because I know I'm not. So this parable isn't for me. But you know, Pastor, I'm glad you're here because there are some other people in this church who are very self-righteous, who are very judgmental, and they need to hear this sermon. So you go ahead and preach to them. Say it loud for people in the back. Well, before you tune me out, hold up and pay attention just for a few more minutes. Yes, this parable is for people who think they are righteous because they're faithful in discharging all their Christian duties. They go to church every Sunday, even in person. They attend prayer meetings. They serve at church. They tithe, right? They go on mission trips. They do their quiet time every day. And then they avoid overt sins like adultery, lying, and stealing. Now, there are proud and self-righteous people in the church who look down on others, and this sermon is most certainly for them. And I do hope that if this describes you, that you pay attention. But this parable is not only for them. This parable is for anyone who looks down on anyone else for any reason. Let me say that again. This parable is for anyone who looks down on anyone else for any reason. You see, the truth is, we're all proud and self-righteous in some way, and we all treat some people with contempt, or at least think of some people with contempt. Now, it may not be a religious or churchy standard, but we all have some standard that we're all trying to live up to, and we judge others who don't live up to those standards that we think are important, that are worth living up to. Let me explain. But let me ask you, actually. So who do you look down on? Maybe you're a student, and you look down on other students who don't study hard, who don't take school seriously, and who don't seem to care about their future. Or maybe you look down on the students who study too hard, who take school too seriously, and who don't know how to relax and have fun in the present. Or maybe you look down on some people in your church who seem too loose. They don't take sin seriously enough, and they don't take God's holiness seriously enough. And you think that they're being bad witnesses for Jesus because they don't take their faith seriously enough. They're always drinking and smoking and being so worldly, and they make following Jesus look like a joke. Or maybe you look down on Christians who seem too legalistic, too judgmental of others, and who don't seem to take God's grace seriously enough. And you think that they are being bad witnesses because they don't have enough joy and enough freedom in their lives. They're always mad or critical about something, and they make following Jesus look like a chore. Or maybe you look down on people who don't work hard at their jobs, who take vacations they can't afford, and who make irresponsible financial decisions that negatively impacts their family. Or maybe you look down on people who work too hard, who are so responsible and so frugal that they don't know how to be generous or to have a good time. Or here's a hot one. 
Maybe you look down on the progressive types who make everything about racial injustice and systemic racism and who are foolishly embracing the woke ideology of liberal culture and who fail to see the dangers and the evils of critical race theory. Or maybe you look down on the conservative types who refuse to see the reality and the pain of systemic injustice and who accuse you of being a cultural Marxist because you care about justice, when the reason why you care about justice is because the Bible tells you that God cares about justice and oppression. So let me ask you again, who do you look down on? If we're honest, I think we can all confess that we all look down on some people. I do, and so do you. We all look down on people. You see, you may not be religious, but you are self-righteous, every single one of us. So the audience of this parable is self-righteous people and people who look down on others. In other words, the audience of this parable is us, every single one of us. Second, let's consider the contrast in the parable. Jesus began this parable by introducing two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and these two men could not be more different from one another. They represent opposite ends on Jewish uh, society and the spectrum of Jewish society. You see, the Pharisee was respected and praised by many people, but the tax collector was despised and badmouthed by people. So these two men went up to the temple and pray, to, to pray, but only one actually prayed. One went up to brag about himself, and the other went to beg God for mercy. First, let's consider the, uh, consider the Pharisee and his prayer. Now, the Pharisee, uh, Jesus said, stood by himself to pray, right? He stood away from the others. He stood closer to the altar. By separating himself from others, he was visually communicating, I am different from everyone else. In fact, I'm not only different from everyone else, I'm better than everyone else. The Pharisee mentioned God, but he didn't pray to God. He thanked God. He said he thanked God, but instead of focusing on God's character, who did he focus on? His own character. Instead of recounting everything that God had done for him, what does he do? He recounts all that he does for God. He was completely self-absorbed. One Bible commentator said this, after his initial nod to God, his was essentially a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as prayer. And so in his so-called prayer, the Pharisee boasted in two ways. First, he boasted about himself. And second, he boasted about what he did for God. First, he boasted about himself by comparing himself favorably against other people that he deemed inferior to him, people that he deemed more sinful than him. He thanked God that he was not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector who was in the temple with him. He looked down on others, and then he boasted that he was not like them. He looked over at the tax collector and said, God, I thank you. I'm not like that guy over there. He's awful. He's horrible. Everyone hates him. Thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Now, the Pharisee may not have been oppressive, unjust, adulterous, or traitorous, but he was proud, very proud. And did you know that pride is just as despicable in the eyes of a holy God as all the other sins? Now, if you grew up in the church like I did, 
you're probably led to believe that promiscuity was the worst possible sin. Yes, promiscuity is sin. But I think pride is far worse and a far more dangerous sin than promiscuity. You know, God never said, I oppose the promiscuous. But God did say, I oppose the proud. It is far better to be promiscuous and humble than sexually pure and proud. And let me put it this way. It is far better to be same-sex attracted and humble than straight and proud. Second, the Pharisee boasted about what he did for God. He boasted of all of his religious and pious activities for God. First, he boasted about how much he fasted. Now, the Old Testament law required that faithful Jews fast only one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. But this Pharisee boasted that he he fasts twice a week. So he fasted above and beyond what God required in the law. So this, in his eyes, made him more spiritual, more righteous, and more holy than other people who fasted less than he did. Second, he also boasted about how much he tithed. He tithed on everything he said. Now, the Old Testament law required tithes on only certain things, like like on the first things of your flock or grain, wine, and oil. But this Pharisee gave tithes on everything, including herbs and vegetables and other things from which God did not require a tithe. Just like his fasting, his tithing was above and beyond what God required, and that, in his eyes, made him more righteous and more superior to other people. You see, the Pharisee was boastful. And like the Pharisee, we're boastful too. We boast about things that we think make us better than others. So let me ask you, in what ways do you boast? Do you boast that you're not like those other Christians who abuse God's grace and who don't take God's holiness seriously? Or do you boast that you're not like those other Christians who are so legalistic and who can't seem to enjoy their Christian liberties? Or do you boast that you're not like those other irresponsible people with their finances? Or do you boast you're not like those stingy, frugal Christians who seem to hoard and save and never spend? Do you boast that you're not like those loose parents who never seem to discipline their kids and let their kids go crazy? Or do you boast that you're not like one of those strict parents who are always yelling at their kids and trying to control their kids with fear and anger? Or do you boast that you're not like those yoke, oh, yoke, woke uh, progressives who are undermining biblical sexuality and ethics? Or do you boast that you're not like those heartless conservatives who deny the reality of systemic injustices and who seem to be only concerned about protecting and preserving their own privileges? And in what ways do you boast about what you do? Do you boast about how much you serve at church and how faithful you are in your spiritual disciplines? Or do you boast about how you're being a good witness in the workplace? and outside the church in your community? Do you boast about how, how much, how hard you work and how much you sacrifice your, for your family? Or do you boast about how much time you spend with your family and how you're willing to sacrifice work for your family? Or do you boast that you're being true to God's word and that you will never cave to the pressures of liberal culture even though people may call you a bigot? Or do you boast that you care about injustice and oppression and that you care for the poor and the marginalized even though people may call you a cultural Marxist. You see, if we pause long enough 
And if we reflect deeply enough, we will realize that this Pharisee is a mirror for each and every one of us. See, the humbling truth is that we are all proud, we're all self-righteous, and we all boast in our own ways. We may boast about different things, but we do boast about something. We all look down on someone else. Friends, we are not all that different from the Pharisee that we find in our parable today. Next, let's consider the tax collector now and his prayer. Now, the tax collector was a complete contrast to the Pharisee. He stood afar off, away from the altar, probably standing on the outer edge of the court, barely in the room. He felt too unworthy, too guilty, and too ashamed to even lift up his eyes to heaven. So he hung his head in shame, and he beat his chest in sorrow and regret. And unlike the Pharisee, this tax collector had nothing to boast about. He knew who he was, and he knew what he had done. You see, tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society, and everyone rightly hated them. They were collaborators who betrayed their own country, and they worked for the enemy, for the hated Roman Empire. They worked for the Romans by collecting their uh, taxes for them from their own people. And they abused their power to collect more taxes than they should, and they pocketed the extra money. That's how they made their wealth. You see, they weren't just traitors. They were also oppressors, people who oppressed their own people. You know, I think Jews felt toward um, Jewish tax collectors the way Koreans felt about those traitorous Korean middlemen who trafficked Korean women as comfort women to the Japanese military. Did you know that it was local Korean businessmen, middlemen, uh, who recruited Korean women with false promises of work in factories and restaurants? And once the Korean women were recruited, they were enslaved and sold to the Japanese military where they were forced to work as sex slaves, as comfort women for Japanese soldiers in so-called comfort stations. As you can imagine, those Korean middlemen who got wealthy by doing this despicable thing were hated and despised by other Koreans. Can you imagine what you would feel if it was your daughter or your sister or your wife that was kidnapped and forced to work as a comfort woman? What would you think of the Korean middlemen who got wealthy by doing this for the Japanese army? And I think that's how Jews felt toward Jewish tax collectors. They were hated and despised because they didn't just betray, they also oppressed their own people. And so this tax collector, realizing what he has done, realizing his sin, his guilt, and his shame for his betrayal and oppression of his own people, prayed very differently than the Pharisee, didn't he? There was no comparing himself to others to make himself feel better. He knew that he was the worst of the worst. There was no boasting about what he had done. There was only shame and regret over the injustices and the oppression that he had committed against his own people. There was no pride, no self-confidence. And so he simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the Greek verb, which we have uh, translated as be merciful, means be propitiated. Or or, um, let your anger be removed. So the tax collector understood that what he deserved was God's anger. 
And so the tax collector asked God to show him mercy by removing his anger. In essence, this is what the tax collector prayed. God, I know what I deserve is your anger for all that I've done, for all that I am. But would you show mercy to me by removing your anger from me? I know I deserve it, but would you remove it? Would you be merciful? And unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector had nothing to boast about before God. He could not offer God one good reason why God should do this. And so the tax collector begged God for mercy. So we see the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Next and finally, let's see the lesson of the parable. What's the lesson here that Jesus wants to teach us? Now, if you were to ask Jesus' original listeners, so which of these two men were saved, they would have thought that was a stupid question. Ridiculous question. Of course it's the Pharisee, the good Pharisee who's saved. Of course it's not that traitorous, oppressive tax collector. He's damned. What kind of dumb question is this? And so Jesus said, what, what Jesus said in verse 14 would have shocked and offended his listeners. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said that it was the tax collector who went home justified, who went home saved, who went home with his sins forgiven, and not the Pharisee. Now, if you're listening to me, you should ask, how can God do this? How is this fair? This should offend you. This should scandalize you. In fact, this is the scandal and the stumbling block of the gospel. Because the gospel should bother us. The gospel doesn't say that the good people are in and the bad people are out. Rather, the gospel says the humble are in, no matter how bad they are, and the proud are out, no matter how good they are. Let me say that again. The gospel says the humble are in, no matter how bad they are, and the proud are out, no matter how good they are. And Jesus said that the tax collector, despite all the injustice, despite all the oppression he committed against his own people, it was the tax collector who was justified, who was saved, and who had his sins forgiven, who had the anger of God removed from him. Why? Because he humbled himself before God and begged God for mercy. You see, the truth is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector had the anger of God hanging over them but only one of them realized it. The tax collector realized it, so he asked God for mercy, and he went home with the anger of God removed. But the Pharisee went home with the anger of God still hanging over him, and he didn't even realize it because what he thought he deserved from God was God's favor, not his anger. But the Bible says that the anger of God hangs over all of us, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes you. No matter how good or how righteous or how successful or how responsible or respectable uh, you may be. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is eternal death and that we all deserve God's holy anger and condemnation for our sins. So friends, here's the lesson of this parable. If we humble ourselves before God 
And if we ask God to be merciful to us, to remove his anger from us, he will. But how can God do that? How can a holy God do that? And the reason why God is willing and able to remove his anger from us is because he released it on another. He released it on his son, Jesus. On the cross, Jesus received the anger of God that we deserve for our sins so that we might have it removed from us. Because Jesus was forsaken, we are forgiven. Because Jesus was condemned, we can now be accepted. Because Jesus received wrath, we can now receive mercy. Friends, this is the gospel. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, even if you are as bad as this unjust and oppressive tax collector, even if you have hurt other people with your sins and selfishness, if you will humble yourself before God, and if you will ask God to be merciful to you, to remove his anger from you for the sake of what Jesus did on the cross for you, then you will be saved. If you humble yourself before God, then God will exalt you with salvation and eternal life. And he will replace his anger over you with his steadfast love so that it is no longer his anger, but his steadfast love that hangs over your head. And now, because God's anger has been removed, because it has been replaced with God's steadfast love, do you know what you can now do? You can now draw near to God without fear or shame. You don't have to hang your head in shame anymore, but you can lift up your face, bright and shining as the sun, and you no longer have to beat your chest with your hands, but you can raise open hands to God in worship because you have received mercy and grace and love in Jesus Christ. It turns a penitent sinner into a freed and joyful worshiper. When you get the gospel. Friends, you may not have a lot to boast in, but that's okay. But we can boast in this, that Jesus loves me so much that he laid down his life for me. I can boast in how much Jesus loves me that he would give everything for me. I can boast in this, that Christ died for me. He rose for me. And he did all that because of his great love for me. As the Apostle Paul said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what? What's the takeaway for today? And I'm going to wrap this up now. Just two things, two takeaways. First, be humble. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop thinking that you're better than others, especially those that you disagree with. And stop looking down on others. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with or like what other people think, say, or do. You can still disagree with them. You can still seek to lovingly and humbly persuade them of what you think is true, but you speak the truth in love. But as a Christ follower, you must stop looking down on other people with contempt. Did you know that when you look down on others, you can't love them? I want you to think about that. The person that you look down on, you do not love. You cannot love people you look down on. You can dismiss them. You can demonize them. You can despise them. But you will never love them. Listen, there are going to be people in the church that you disagree with. I'm sure there are people in this room that you disagree with. You may disagree with their lifestyle, their choices, their politics, and their view on racial justice. 
but they are still your neighbors, and you're called to love all of your neighbors, not just the ones that you agree with, but even the ones that you have sharp disagreements with. You're called to love your neighbors, even the ones that you think are wrong. Second, if you're not a Christian, today I urge you, would you humble yourself before God and ask for his mercy? There is nothing you can do that will ever make God say, enough, I don't want you anymore. Some of you need to hear this today because you're here today with your, you're overwhelmed with guilt and shame and, and you feel like this is the last place you want to be because in your heart of hearts you wonder, does God like me? Does God want me? Does God love me? And my answer to you is yes. He loves you more than you can imagine. So today, would you humble yourself before God and would you ask God for mercy and he will give you mercy upon mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace upon grace, and he will love you with a love that you have never known before, a love that no other human being on earth can give you, a love that will actually satisfy the longing of your heart to be loved unconditionally. So today, friends, if you do not yet know the love of God in Christ, would you open your hearts to him, receive him, and rest and his love for you. And today, you can go home rejoicing like this tax collector, knowing that all of your sins are forgiven and that the anger of God has not only been removed, but it has been replaced with God's steadfast love. And may the mercy and grace shown to you by God in Jesus empower and motivate you to show mercy and grace to others, especially to those that you disagree with. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that there is no sin, no iniquity, no transgression that could ever sever us from you. I thank you that in your son Jesus, all of our sins, even the, the biggest, the darkest, the most secret ones can be forgiven, and that you love us with an overwhelming, never-ending, steadfast love that we can never lose. And I pray that each and every one of us today might go home rejoicing because we know that your anger has been removed and it's been replaced with your steadfast love. Amen.